And now, The Travel Show with Arthur and Pauline Fromer. Your chance to talk to the publishers of the nation's best-selling travel guide series. Whether your travel destination is around your corner or any corner of the world, the Fromers will help you get the most out of your travel experience and save you money at the same time. And now, Arthur and Pauline Fromer. And this is the travel show in which we talk about vacations. Welcome. I'm Arthur Fromer. And I'm Pauline Fromer. And in the time ahead, we're going to be talking about travel. And that's a conversation that you can join. We've gotten a lot of guests on this show uh, who have written to me at FromerTravelYahoo.com. They're either travel experts or they're travelers with questions. We welcome them all on. But we also hope that you remember that we're not just here on radio. We're the folks behind the Fromer guidebooks. You can buy them wherever books are sold. And, well, we hope you'll visit us online. Uh, Fromers.com, F-R-O-M-M-E-R-S.com, has a lot of great information, all written by travel journalists. So we're not selling you anything. Uh, it's all about travel and even dreaming about travel. We are taping this show at the height of the coronavirus uh, quarantines. So we know nobody is traveling. Nobody should travel. It's important to social distance right now, but we can still dream of travel. And if you visit us at Fromers.com, you'll see gorgeous photos, history-rich text, and much else. Plus, follow us on social media. Uh, You'll find the word Fromers on Pinterest, on Instagram, on Facebook, and on Twitter. We're doing the show a little differently today. We are going to devote the entire show to our next guest. He is Connor Knighton. You may know him from CBS Sunday Morning, where he's a correspondent. The reason we decided to have him on is he has a wonderful new book just came out. It's called Leave Only Footprints, My Acadia to Zion Journey Through Every National Park. Connor, welcome to the Travel Show. Thank you for having me. And I got to say, reading this book has been a balm to my soul. It's been so nice to escape, at least on the page, uh, to our our wonderful national parks. Uh, Let me ask you, what was the impetus for doing this book And, and, and doing what you did on Sunday, CBS Sunday Morning? So actually, the impetus came about in a way before either of those projects. So I had been living in L.A. Um, I uh, had a relationship and I was engaged. And then all of a sudden I found myself not engaged anymore. And then a little bit unmoored uh, at that point. Um, I was at that time sort of in a self-imposed kind of self-quarantine where I was <laughs> sitting around the house, you know, yeah. not not like enough. And so my friends uh suggested that like a change of scenery something might do me good and i ended up taking their advice very literally um i had seen that it was going to be the 100th anniversary of the national park service in in the upcoming years at the end of 2015 when this is all happening and i thought you know what like wouldn't it be cool and barely possible but still possible to see all of the national parks in one year and so i I, I started to, to plot and plan to think about how I might do it. I was a kind of part-time correspondent for Sunday morning at that point, but I sent them an email just floating that idea, seeing if they'd be interested at all in doing a piece, a couple of pieces on the parks. Um, but I was determined I was going to do it no matter what. So it wasn't for work. It wasn't for 
for a book. It was just sort of for my soul. I decided this is kind of the reset that I needed. And then, you know, along the way, I started discovering these fascinating stories. I would send back dispatches that we would air on the show. And then a good two thirds of the parks were just for me, but they've all come together in this book where I described that, well, that before, entire journey from, from beginning to end. Before we go into the, into the book, I think we need to uh, give a definition because anybody who knows anything about the national parks knows that there are what, 400 of them. So you can't have seen all of those in a year. Which ones did you see? How did you narrow the list down? Well, and so you're, you're touching upon the most frequent email I would get during that year, especially when word got out that, that this is what I was doing, where people would be like, well, when are you coming to Harper's Ferry, West Virginia? Or when are you coming to, you know, uh, some Gettysburg battlefield? And so the, the Park Service manages 400, and it's changing every day, but in the 420-some range of, of units. And so that would be parks, seashores, monuments. Um, grasslands, uh, and that's all under the Park Service, under the Department of Interior. But the actual capital N, capital P, national parks, um, at the time, there were only 59 of them. Now there are 62. And so the difference between a park and, let's say, a grassland or a monument, sometimes it's hard to determine on the ground. There are some very beautiful national monuments. It's not really a scenery distinction, but a park has to be created by Congress. Huh. Whereas a lot of these other designations can be established by a president. Um, and so, and some of our favorite national parks today were originally established as monuments to kind of push them along. It's a, it's a faster way to make that happen. But what, in what most about the, cases, what, well, just quickly, what about the Statue of Liberty? Hmm. I always think of that as a national park. Where does that fall? Do you know? And, and understandable why you would, because if you're there, you're going to encounter a park ranger wearing a uniform of the National Park Service with a with a black Stetson hat. Um, exactly. So that is not a national park. Um, it is, it, it, and even among the Park Service, there's a lot of uh, confusion sometimes where <laughs> where it, it, it's, a, it's a bit of a branding disaster. Like if you've ever tried to buy a Fitbit, there's like ten different models of Fitbits. <laughs> like that's kind of how <laughs> right. the parks are. Um, huh. Ultimately, they're all places we own together. But no, the sta- I forget if the Statue of Liberty is a monument or a, it, 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 there's some other distinction for it. Um, but the parks, in most cases, are the marquee kinds of spots you'd plan a vacation around. So a Yosemite, a Yellowstone, whereas like Thaddeus Kosciuszko National, I think, Memorial is a room and a house in Philadelphia. You know, there's lots of things where it's like, <laughs> right. and Franklin's bathroom is, is something. Right. But the In most cases, the parks are the big places. So that's when I kind of decided I could hit them all in the year. It would be, as you mentioned, impossible to see all 420 some of those. And honestly, even though there's a few people who have done that over the course of a lifetime, you could never do it in a year. Sure. Um, but to me, then you start to slip into some places that like, if you're super into Polish American history, yes, you should go to that room in Philadelphia, but otherwise probably not right. a must visit. Whereas yeah. at least the national parks, and I can now say this as someone who's been to them all, like there's not one that I'd I'd say to leave off that list. They're all they're all fantastic and worth a visit. So I decided well, if I narrowed my focus to just those official parks, I could get it done. You had to convince your producers at CBS Sunday Morning that this was a worthwhile thing to do. And for anybody tuning in late, we are speaking to Con- Connor Knighton, he's the author of a terrific new book called Leave Only Footprints about his year-long journey to visit all of the national parks. But your producers said to you, that's going to be a lot of trees, isn't it? They, they, <laughs> they couldn't visualize it beyond that. But you found 
incredible diversity, right? You know, and, and to their credit, like I, I got that criticism or note. And so in the back of my head all year long, I was like, okay, buddy, don't make this a lot of trees because I think <laughs> they were just worried, especially if we committed to doing something long-term and we aired, you know, 26 or so segments on the show um, and fatigue could have really set in if, if each piece is just like, Hey, isn't this place beautiful? But right. My goal was that each piece would be, Hey, isn't this place interesting? They're all beautiful. Um, and so to start uh, we looked into the way I ended up selling them on it is we looked down the list and I was like, you pick the one that seems like the worst to you. Everyone knows Yellowstone is going to be great. Let's sure. find sort of the, the crummiest park. And so we looked down the list and really not knowing about half of these places. And we eventually landed on Cuyahoga Valley in Ohio, which huh. is 20 miles outside of Cleveland. Um, it is, it is not Yosemite. Um, but so I, I sort of bet, I let my boss pick that one, and I'm like, all right, fine. If I can find a story there, do you believe I can find one anywhere? And I said, like, all right, have at it. And so this is before I ever left California. I started researching, and I found this fascinating story about how they were reviving their old farmland in that park. And there was a, a former Marine who was now running a restaurant in downtown Cleveland, wanted to be Mr. Farm to Table, never really felt that connection to the land, and then ultimately moved his family inside of that national park. They leased it at an old 1800s farmhouse, and now the carrots that are served at that restaurant in Cleveland are grown on government soil inside huh. of that national park. Um, and, and that's like a, that's a Sunday morning story we would have done any year. If, if, any, if, you, if you watch the show, you know, that, that's our bread and butter, are those sort of quirky, interesting food, family kind of stories. And, and so that's what I went to find, um, whether it was a story about, you know, a, a Mexican town on the other side of the border at Big Bend or, or a, a landscape quilter at Mesa Verde in Colorado. I was always trying to find stories that would, we would air even if they weren't a park. And I think that's well, let's, let's start at the beginning, because you started with the very first sunrise in the United States, at least on your first journey. Where is that and what does it take to see it? So uh, what I quickly discovered as I was I was looking into that is that there's a lot of debate about where that is. And so because everyone wants to be first, first is significant, first feels special. And so uh as far as I could determine, and there's, there's still folks who would disagree with me on this, but uh, the top of Cadillac Mountain at Acadia National Park in Maine is where the first sun rays hit the contiguous United States. Now, obviously, right. if you go out to the Virgin Islands, you know, you're going to get the sun first there. Um, but even in Maine, there's like a town that claims that it's the first city to see the sunrise because <laughs> it's, you know, there's, there's, a, there's nobody who lives on Cadillac Mountain, you know, and there's right. some other place. And even the distinction is only true for half the year. And so I ended up getting sort of a science lesson in this. But because wow. of the curvature of the Earth, the sun for like through the winter months up until March, it's Cadillac Mountain. You know, I'm going to have to like September. I, I'm going to have to hold you there because we have to take our first commercial break. But we're going to hear a little bit more, a lot more about Connor Knighton's book, Leave Only Footprints, after these messages. Welcome back to The Travel Show. It's a, it's a special edition today because we're devoting the entire show to our national parks. And 
more importantly, to a wonderful book that you can read that can make you feel like you're traveling to the parks, even if you're just in your living room. It's called Leave Only Footprints. It's called My Acadia to Zion Journey Through Every National Park. And it's written by Connor Knighton. And we have Connor on the phone. He starts out the book, as we were just discussing before the commercial, going to the place where in winter, because it's all different because of the curvature of the earth, in winter, the first uh, sunrise happens. And so where did you go, Connor? Uh, so to Acadia National Park in Maine, which if you were planning a trip and to any of your listeners, January's probably not the time to go to Acadia. You know, that's the park <laughs> right. that sees most of its visitors, the vast majority of its visitors come in the summer months, some to see like the changing of the leaves in the fall, um, but it's still beautiful. And January. you weren't alone. Um, I was not alone, and that surprised me. I think if you if you hike to the top of Cadillac Mountain on January 2nd, you will be alone. But on <laughs> January 1st, because there are people who are into seeing this first sunrise, um, at the top, all of a sudden, I found 50 other people. The hike to the top was, uh, uh, was solitary. I've since been back to Acadia, and... I've realized you can drive that road. There's a road that takes you all the way to the top of Cadillac Mountain, but I purposely did not drive it on my second trip because I sort of always want that to remain frozen in my memory the way that it was on that day, which was a frozen road. It's, it's completely shut down. You have to walk it. It's a, it's not that strenuous of a hike, but it's, it's long and slippery. Um, and then, but, but worth the, uh, the work when you get to the top, it's a beautiful sign. And it also just feels like you, you started that year a couple of seconds before everyone else. And even though that's, that's a technicality in a lot of ways, <laughs> right. it felt significant to me because I knew what a big year I had ahead of me. It's like, all right, I need every second possible if I'm going to even remotely pull off what I've planned. Right. So that was the very first place you went. And the fun thing about this book is it it, it divides the parks into subjects, uh, some of which are, are odd, like mystery or water or animals or God. Um we spoke in the first segment about the fact that your uh, producers at CBS Sunday Morning were nervous about you doing too much about trees. But there are some fascinating trees in California that nobody is actually allowed to see. Can you can you talk a little bit about those trees there and why they're they're, I guess, part of the national parks, but not marked? Yeah, so the California, as I eventually discovered, is kind of home to all of the celebrities, is what I call them. But like <laughs> everyone, it, in much in the same way that that first sunrise is something that people brag about. The the tallest tree, the oldest tree, the largest tree, those are all in California. Um, the largest tree that you can you can find pretty easily. It's uh, the General Sherman tree at Sequoia National Park. It is massive. You know, you, you'd have to link arms many times over to make your way around its trunk. But the tallest tree uh, is at somewhere at Redwoods National Park. But when I asked the ranger where that was, they wouldn't tell me. It's not on a map. Um, I don't know if, if some of them even know. There are there's a very small group of scientists who know, and the reason they keep that a secret is because. The, the root system is so shallow and delicate that if everyone came out to see it, and heck, I would have been one of those person, people who doesn't want to see the tallest tree, right. um, you would potentially be damaging this. That it happened in some way uh, for a past tree that they thought was the tallest, and sort of they learned their lesson from that. Um, so the oldest tree, which is also somewhere in the White Mountains of California, 
um, that is also, I mean, it's, it's thousands and thousands of years old, um, but you would not know it to look at it. So that's a case where you might even, and for that matter, the tallest tree, you probably wouldn't know to look at it. At some point, once you get over a couple hundred feet, they all look tall. So you right. really have to have like climbed it to know the difference. Um, but those sorts of superlatives, uh, they have, have wisely kept under wraps, especially as, as tourism is increasing. Sure. That's one that wants their picture with a big one. Yeah. And this is just one of the ways that the rangers and the national park system over the years has saved these trees. I mean, we probably would not have redwood trees or sequoias uh, any longer if uh, if they hadn't been protected by the national parks. Right. Yeah. And that's actually uh, Yosemite, which was Yellowstone is the first national park, but Yosemite was actually protected before Yellowstone. It was protected as a state park in California and kind of got this whole idea rolling. Um, and so Yosemite is a beautiful place, but it was really the, the trees that were used to make the case in Congress. This is back you know, in the middle of the Civil War is when Yosemite was protected. And it was a senator from California arguing that these these giants of the forest, the sequoias that are there, should be protected. Also, it was you know, we were a new newish country back then, and this was something that we could take pride in. There are no giant sequoias in England, and, right. and so this was you know a, a bit of national pride it, to the extent that like people would at some point cut them down and take them on tour, almost like a, a circus attraction where you know they would strip the bark or take a stump. Um, and so as they, as more and more of that started happening, I think, you know, there was a, a very wise group of, of conservationists to realize, you know what, if we, if we keep this up, there won't be any left. So these are, these are worth protecting. There's other ways to find lumber to build a table. Let's, let's save these. Right, right. So important. And, it, you know, we, there's the mystery of, of which are the oldest trees, which are the tallest trees. You also have a, a chapter on other mysteries that the Park Service uh, protects, like the uh, those fireflies. Are those in uh, that that all blink at the same time? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, the synchronous fireflies uh, of Congaree National Park, although there's also, and I, I forget if I even mentioned this in the book or not, but there's also another group of them at Great Smoky Mountain. And huh. there's twice a year, or, or sorry, once a year, I guess, there's a, there's a moment where they all just flash in unison for a period of a couple of weeks, and no one quite knows why they do that. Scientists don't know. There's, there's theories that maybe it's a mating ritual. Maybe it's a mating ritual gone wrong. Maybe there was a moment where everyone was trying to be first, and then all the fireflies accidentally started blinking in unison. But for whatever reason, it happens, and it's, and it's beautiful. We are speaking with Connor Knighton who is the author of a terrific new book. It's called Leave Only Footprints, My Acadia to Zion Journey Through Every National Park. We have to take another short break in just a second or two. Uh, but in that national park, that's in South Carolina. You don't think of, of really interesting national parks being, I don't know why, South Carolina wouldn't have popped first to mind. I would have thought Utah or Colorado. Uh, we'll talk more about that park and others when we get back from these commercial breaks. So don't don't turn that dial. We'll be right back. And this is The Travel Show. 
I'm Pauline Fromer here with my dad, Arthur Fromer, and we're devoting the entire show today to Connor Knighton. You may know him from CBS Sunday Morning. He's a correspondent on that show. He has a wonderful new book out. It's called Leave Only Footprints, My Acadia to Zion Journey Through Every National Park. And you say in the book that every park is so different from the next. And there are so many mysteries and so many odd things that these parks are sheltering. For example, in uh, there's a place called Hell's Hole that has something called the pup fish that, that is on under great lock and key. Can you can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so that's a Death Valley. It's called Devil's Hole. So oh, a, a Devil's Hole. A slightly Sorry. different sinister name. <laughs> yes, yeah. <that's> fine. <laughs> um, well, and, and you'd be forgiven for not knowing that it exists because, it, like, if you look at a map of Death Valley, which is three million acres and change, you know, in California, Nevada, there's, like, all of the park on one side of the map, and then there's this tiny 40-acre section of green in the park map that's, like, further to the east and that exists just to protect the devil's hole pupfish which is one of the rarest fish in the world it only lives in this little puddle basically in the middle of the desert um it's uh there's an, uh, an aquifer so sort of this this underground chamber of water um that goes down to a depth of who knows how far no one's ever seen the bottom it's at least 500 some feet deep uh, and so these little fish, which are an inch long, have been eking out this existence in the desert uh, back when back when that desert was all covered with water. And then somehow they wow. all dried up and ended up in this puddle. Um, but the devil's hole pupfish is in some ways responsible for the endangered species protections we have today. There was a case, uh, you know, decades ago where the farmers who live near the park who had alfalfa ranches realize, well, hey, if there's this underground water chamber over on, on this little section, maybe that water extends to our land. And sure enough, it did. But when they started drilling wells, as they would take some of that water, the water where the fish lived dropped, um, the fish started to die. And then it became sort of this national fish emergency where like all the fish biologists were like, you have to stop doing this. The farmers were like, what are you talking about? It's our land. And so this went all the way to the Supreme Court and the court sided with the fish. Um, And so uh, they they had to stop drilling the well. But today, because of all the controversy around it, these fish are like a maximum, they look like a maximum security prison because they put up a a fence, cameras, everything around them. Because at the time, and even some today, if you dropped a couple drips of bleach in that little pool, you would kill all pupfish in the world. And, 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 And the upset farmers or just upset villagers or whoever, like, consider doing that then that solves their problem um and so they're they're kind of under lock and key so it's not much to look at as a visitor it, it, it's it's an interesting thing that exists but there's a reason that tour groups aren't heading out there because even if you made it to this little hole you're you're several feet up from from where the, the pond actually is and so you could not see them swimming around but we right. were able to get in on fish counting day and so twice a year these scientists put on scuba gear they dive down into this puddle and they count how many fish there are um and we're, we're into like the i think it was like 110 or something around when i was there so a, a very small group of them and you are listening to connor knighton you may know him from cbs sunday morning we're talking about his new book which is the best way to take a virtual vacation right now that i know of it's called leave only footprints my acadia to zion journey through every national park and we've been talking about how the national parks have been really 
instrumental in making sure we save our giant sequoias and redwood trees, these tiny little pupfish. But one of the things in the book that really surprised me is how Lake Clark Park, I hope I'm getting the name right, in Alaska, mm-hmm. is trying to help people or men and women who have served in our armed forces come back with PTSD and help them get their lives back together. I had no idea this type of activity would be happening in, in a national park. Can you tell that story a bit? Yeah, so the it's easy to quantify things like, you know, protecting X amount of acres of grassland or, or this many number of a fish or bald eagle or whatever. The spiritual and social good that parks provide is harder to quantify, but it, I, I, as someone who's experienced it myself and watched many other people experience it, like, that is very real. And so uh, there's a group in who's got a lodge at the edge of Lake Clark, which is one of the more remote Alaska national parks. It is not connected to the road system. You have to fly in or boat in. And by the way, when I was starting this journey, I realized those were going to be the difficult ones. You know, it's, right. it's relatively easy to get to Rocky Mountain National Park, but there's there's some in Alaska that are that are a, a production. Um, but because of that remote setting, I mean, it is beautiful. And so there's this group, Samaritan's Purse, which is not part of the Park Service; they're their own, you know, nonprofit charity. Um, but they uh, fly. I think it's sixteen wounded veterans and their spouses every week of the summer to the park, to a lodge that they have there that, that overlooks everything, uh, all expenses paid. Uh, and they use that week to kind of help them get in touch with their spirituality, to heal from whatever maybe more emotional or PTSD kind of wounds that they might be suffering from and, and using that setting to, to impart some of those lessons. I, I, came across, I mean, I'd look for a place to stay at the park, and I didn't even see that place come up in my searches. And then when I walked by it while I was there, I was, I was camping. I saw this nice-looking lodge, and what is that? And then I realized it's not meant for guys like me. You know, it, it, it is just there to serve these uh, wounded warriors. Um, but the fact that they bring their spouse is interesting, too. That's always part of the deal. You cannot come solo. Um, the men and women who come bring their partner and uh, that's it's sort of meant for them to, to reconnect, to get away from whatever chaos they might be experiencing and, and, and heal all and, odds and, are a city yeah, and, heal. and reconnect to each other. Yeah, it was a very moving part of the book. We've been speaking with Connor Knighton, uh, the author of Leave Only Footprints, My Acadia to Zion Journey Through Every National Park. Don't turn that dial. We'll be right back in just a few minutes. listening to The Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer. My dad, Arthur Fromer, is on the line. And also on the line is Connor Knighton. You may know that name if you watch CBS Sunday Morning. He's a a correspondent for that wonderful show. He's also the author of a wonderful new book that will bring travel into your lives, even if you're just sitting in your living room reading. It's called Leave Only Footprints. It's My Acadia to Zion Journey Through Every National Park. And some of the national parks have really intense history that that people may not know about. I was so surprised to read about the Dry Tortugas 
a national park and and uh, Dr. Mudd. Can you can, uh, tell that story? That was just such a delightful part of the book, a fascinating part of the book. So that's a park that would also fall into the category of difficult to get to. Um, uh, to make it to Dry Tortugas, it also requires a, a flight or a boat ride. Um, you basically drive all the way to the end of Key West and then get on a boat and go another 70-some miles out into the ocean, um, And so, which is what makes it a beautiful park. It's also what made it a very successful prison. Um, Dry Tortugas was built as a, as a fort and then uh, became a, a military prison. Um, and it's what the most famous prisoner by far is Samuel Mudd, who was the doctor who set the leg of John Wilkes Booth. So after John Wilkes Booth shot Lincoln, he jumped from the balcony, broke his leg, ran off in the middle of the night. And then as, as a few days later, people discovered this doctor, Samuel Mudd, had treated him. Now, Mudd claimed at the time, hey, listen, I'm just doing my doctorly duty. I've never even seen this guy before. Like, you know, it's not my fault. The truth is probably somewhere in between there. It looks like he probably did know him from some past encounter, right. whether he was part of the plot to assassinate Lincoln, who knows. But he, he got sent to this prison. Um, and uh, and so there's all these really interesting letters that he would write back and forth to his wife, uh, who was there. Um, and uh, it's, I mean, it, prison is, is bad no matter where you're locked up. But imagine if you're if you're you know, 70 miles off the coast of the country, you're just on this tiny little island. There's no fresh water. That's why they called it dry tortugas. Um, so everything was like rainwater that they catch or water they bring in. And at some point, all that standing water started to attract mos- mosquitoes, and this yellow fever epidemic swept through the through the prison. And, and I mean, you know, like, I mean, there's no social distancing when you live on the floor. Right. And sure. so everybody got it. And so including the prison doctor. And so he died, everybody died. And so Mud, who was a doctor in his past life, steps up and becomes sort of the, the medical you know, chief of, of this prison. And so because of the actions that he did during that time, uh, helping to, you know, isolate some of the prisoners, treat those who were sick, uh, treat the guards who were sick, uh, guards and prisoners alike wrote a letter arguing for a pardon for him. And he was ultimately pardoned. And this is a guy who went to jail for like, but for conspiring to assassinate the president was right. part of the charge. Um, and so there's a plaque there on his old cell that uh, commemorates his actions. It doesn't necessarily absolve him. They don't say that he was innocent. They just say that he's pardoned. And so it sort of became this lesson in forgiveness. Um, yeah. It's also just a beautiful place. I mean, it's, it's a great uh, park to hang out in. So. And that was one of my favorite chapters. For anybody tuning in late, we're speaking to Connor Knighton, who's written a book about the national parks called Leave Only Footprints. And you talk about how in Petrified Forest National Park, a lot of people steal. They steal pieces of petrified wood. But a lot of them years later feel incredibly guilty about this. So they write letters back to the park rangers saying, oops, here's the wood I stole. And they've been collecting those letters, but it doesn't really help to return the wood, does it? No. And so I think anybody can understand, first of all, the impulse to take it. It's a beautiful, shiny piece of petrified wood. That's why that place is a park in the first place, was to protect what's there. But because some of those chunks are pocket-sized or, you know, stick in a backpack, there's been for years and years a problem with theft there. Um, And it's tough to police that. Rangers try. It is for sure illegal to take that wood. Um, But inevitably, some leave. They started to be surprised by how much 
came back. And so people at their own expense, and it's not cheap to ship what's essentially a heavy rock, um, would come back to the park with these notes attached saying, listen, I took this on vacation. I took this when I was 10, whatever. And like, I, I did the wrong thing. I, it should come, should come back to you. Um, and the park, you know, and the museum, they keep all these letters. It's not even a thing they're necessarily proud of. They just, they just keep them because it came in the mail. But what I think a lot of those letter writers don't know is that you can't put that wood back. Um, there's some scientific value to where it was collected. Right. And so, um, and just in terms of how many million years old it is. So there's this place way down a service road. It's not a visitor attraction, but it's what the rangers call the conscience pile. And it's where they have to dump the wood <laughs> to get them back to the park. And right. like, it's kind of sad. It's also kind of beautiful in a way because it's people who were trying to do the right thing, even if only belatedly. But it's also... Of a lesson in that, like, sometimes that doesn't matter. You can't yeah. put that back. Um, yeah, sometimes so. you can't get forgiveness. And it, it's interesting in the mm-hmm. book, Connor uh, weaves in the story about getting over, getting dumped by his fiance. So that also plays into this chapter. I'm looking at the clock. We have to take one final break, but don't turn that dial. We'll be back for our last segment this hour with more with Connor Knight. Be right back. is The Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer, here with Arthur Fromer. And before we get back to our guests, let me remind everybody, we're not just here on weekends. We are on the web at fromers.com. We're in your local bookstore or on Amazon or any place books are sold with our Fromers guidebooks, which are a labor of love and a lot of fun to read, whether you're planning a vacation or just dreaming of planning one. So we hope you'll visit us during the week, too. But let's get back to our guest. He is Connor Knighton. He has a wonderful book out from the National Parks called Leave Only Footprints. And I got to ask you, you spent this entire year visiting national parks. After that, did you wipe your hands and say, that's it, never going to another one of those places again? Or have you been back? Uh, Yeah, quite the opposite of the waving my hands, never going back. I've kind of never left, which was not what I had intended at all when I started this. Um, I gave up my place that I had been living in Pasadena to, to begin this year. And also that was a place, you know, that's where I had been living with my ex-fiance. And so I, I, there were a variety of reasons why, why I needed to kind of separate myself from that life. Um, but then I found that I liked that nomadic life. And so when that year finished, um, you know, on New Year's Eve, I saw the last sunset in the country at Point Reyes National Seashore in California. I had the longest year of my life. I loved every moment of it. And then what was next? And so I flew to New York for a couple of days, did some interviews. And then I just found that, you know, I, I enjoyed being out and around, not just nature in the U.S. I started, do, you know, by that point, I'd sort of proven myself a few times over to CBS. And so I convinced them to send me to do some, some international parks. So I went to ah, the Galapagos. I wow. went to, to uh, the Seychelles to do a story. And so in those times where I wasn't on the clock, I would take, you know, the two weeks of that month or whatever and and rent an Airbnb or a cabin somewhere or, or stay in some of those coops. Like, they don't care about the plane ticket. You know, it's, it's just it's the same price to fly me home two Sundays later as it is, you know, the time when I was supposed to go. And so I just kind of cover my lodging for those those extra days. 
And so, honestly, the most that I've stayed put in a while is right now. And it, it took a pandemic <laughs> right. and, and a national order to be like, stay at home. And I'm like, all right, well, I should probably find a home. Um, but no, I've, I've been roaming for, for quite a while. It's, it's probably time to be done with that for a variety of reasons. But well, uh, I, I just found that I got addicted to that travel life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, that's and that what what makes this book so much fun. Once again, it's called Leave Only Footprints, My Acadia to Zion na- Journey Through Every National Park. And it's a true love letter to the national parks. It's a it's a wonderful way. I, I found my heart rate slowing as I was reading this. Not that it's dull because you you pack it with. <laughs> history you pack it with humor uh but just just imagining myself in those beautiful parks was really a balm to the soul especially right now uh thank you so much connor we appreciate you you being our guest for this entire show no well thank you so much this is, this is so fun and it's, it's good to especially now to connect with someone even if over uh just, just the phone line so yes thank you absolutely and with you And it's great, as always, speaking to all the travelers or would-be travelers out there. We hope you'll join us again next week at this station. And to those traveling from the bathroom to the kitchen, bon voyage.